0: is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Week 39, working from home still for many. I was at Bloomberg headquarters in New York City along with some of my colleagues in a week where deaths in the United States from COVID-19 surpassed 3,000 a day for the first time. And we saw progress and stumbling blocks this week for coronavirus vaccines. Markets, they moved on that virus news also on... expected stimulus headlines. That was our backdrop for the week. So coming up this hour, we're going to hear from the head of the largest healthcare provider in New York State, Michael Dowling, President and CEO at Northwell Health. He reminds us that a vaccine rollout, it's going to take time. Also, Warner Brothers recently shaking up the movie-making world. Well-known Alice Craig Moffat at Moffat Nathanson weighs in on that. And then we get real on real estate with the chairman of commercial real estate firm, Bestian. All of that to come, we start this hour with this week's U.S. cover story. It's remarks about untangling child care in America. It's written by Cynthia Coons, Bloomberg News U.S. healthcare care reporter. She reports on how the U.S. child care crisis is torturing parents and the economy. We got more from Cynthia and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. They joined Bloomberg Quick Take anchor Tim Stenovic and me.
2: You know, it's been one of the stories of the pan- pandemic, really. And, um, you know, when Cynthia and the team started talking about it, it you know we started with this idea of like really it's um been a a, a story about moms in the pandemic you mm-hmm. know that this has been that's been the group that's been just crushed in in september we saw the the workforce numbers and we just saw women leave the workforce right as schools were reopening and kids were staying remote and basically families were forced with this decision of, do, does mom keep the job or, or does mom watch the kids? And that has incredible economic implications for the country. And, and I, I think as Cynthia is gonna gonna talk about, you know, in many ways, this is just a reflection of this long standing thing that we've known of how broken childcare is in the US compared to other countries. So Cynthia, dig into this with me as you, as you started reporting the story, you know, what, what did you what did you learn?
3: Well, you know, it's interesting. I thought we were in a childcare crisis before COVID, hmm. so um, what happened during COVID just really underscored all the weakness in our system. And I think the thing is also about what we describe as childcare, right? I think most people think of that as 0 to 5 years old and then after that you're you're in the system, but you're really not. I, a lot of places that are working on universal childcare are also looking at summer care, after care, before care because even our school system when it's fully functioning doesn't match a work day. But like Joel said, there were 865,000 women who left the workforce in September. So it was very clear at that moment in time when schools didn't reopen that this situation was just not tenable anymore. The spring, a lot of people left their jobs partly because their jobs disappeared. But I think by the fall, people were reassessing what they could feasibly do with children at home, and a lot of, for a lot of women that meant not working. And there was also a lean in and McKinsey study over the summer, and in their study, over a quarter, I think it was a quarter of women children under age 10 were considering either taking a leave or quitting. So this has been a really big problem for women. and I think what's most interesting is that when you look around the world at wealthy countries, even countries that aren't necessarily as wealthy as our own, there's a lot more money spent on childcare and early education. And so we took this moment to explore what's feasible from a policy perspective. What could the US be doing to maybe come like come back with a stronger you know foundation for working mothers after this crisis subsides?
4: Well, what could we be doing? Because as you write in your story, uh, S&P Global had a report out and they said that the U.S. could add $1.6 trillion to GDP if women entered and stayed in the workforce at a rate similar to how it is in Norway, a country that has government subsidized daycare. So what could the U.S. learn from Norway?
3: So the really interesting thing is, I think there's a perception here that investing in early education and childcare is really expensive, and sure it is, but as a proportion of GDP, countries like Norway, when you look at the data, so we're investing about 1% of GDP. We do spend money on early education for children of low-income families, but in countries like Norway and Sweden, where they're subsidizing everyone's childcare, they're only spending about 2% of GDP. So it's not as though they're spending some extraordinary proportion of their GDP on this. And one of the interesting things and kind of best practices is making this available to everybody, but also making people pay so that it's not necessarily free for everybody. So if you're at a higher end of the income spectrum, you are paying into the system, but you're still getting something that's equivalent to someone who can't afford to pay for that. That's a leveling factor in some of the research that's come out so far about what universal preschools do. And a lot of the programs going on in the U.S., We've seen cities like Portland just passed the universal pre-K for threes and fours. But it wasn't easy,
1: and Cynthia. That. And there it is, kind no, of the you know, liberal
3: bastion of America, I feel like. No, and yet they had a hard time. Yeah, well, there were multiple groups pushing to get this done. They had different ideas and they, ima- they came together in the end. But there was sort of this you know, split decision about what they wanted to do and they had different perspectives on it. And there were also attitudes among voters that um, I spoke to one volunteer who encountered volunteers who, I mean, voters who were saying, you know, children should be at home with their parents. But to be fair, in the end, the vote was 64% in favor. So it yeah. was pretty substantial. And I think it speaks to something that people said to me was, we should do ballot initiatives. Bring this to the people because the people want this. And legislators aren't, legislators may not be getting this done. But here's the thing. Those are threes and fours programs. Very critical for early education. Very critical component of child care. But there's still zero to three. That's the most expensive. Yeah. And then you still have aftercare. You still have summer. So states like Massachusetts, they're working on something potentially. They're you know in early stages trying to get something proposed for this coming legislative session. But what I talked to someone who's working on it, her aim is let's get zero to thirteen. Let's stop saying it's fine for parents to spend all summer cobbling together care. And like most parents know, you're lucky if you find a campus open from nine to four, and you're basically scrambling to figure out before care and after care, or your kid's school ends at two right. fifteen, and obviously no one's job accommodates that.
1: Bloomberg News, U.S. healthcare reporter Cynthia Coons, and Bloomberg Business editor Jill Weber joining Bloomberg Quick Take anchor Tim Stenovic and me. Check out the entire remarks in the magazine. It's on newsstands online and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Online and on the Terminal is also where you'll find the international cover story about how South Korea's successful approach of regimented masking, aggressive testing, and high-tech contact tracing is a blueprint for the U.S. and other democracies. Coming up, from the child care crisis to the health care crisis, get ready for the COVID long haul. More from the president and CEO at Northwell Health. That's next on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Big week for COVID-19 vaccine news, progress, and some starts and stops as well, which has really been a part of this entire pandemic and race for a vaccine, really, from day one. Well, someone who has seen it all from day one as well and oversees the largest healthcare provider in New York State, they have treated over 100,000 COVID-19 patients since the start of the pandemic. We're talking about Michael Dowling and his team. Michael is president and CEO at Northwell Health. Mike is also author of a new book, Leading Through a Pandemic, The Inside Story of Humanity, Innovation, and Lessons Learned During the COVID-19 Crisis. He's optimistic and realistic about a COVID-19 vaccine.
5: What's important, and we we should uh, be celebrating, and that is that we finally have a vaccine that we can actually start to distribute. But I think everybody should be well aware that this is going to be many, many months before we're able to vaccinate the bulk of the population. And, and then we obviously have to deal with the issue that many, many people in the public are very hesitant about taking a vaccine. So while, while it's a great news that we have it and it's a great news that it's beginning, uh, which we should celebrate, as I said, but this is a long haul. This is not a quick fix answer at the moment. And it should in no way uh, uh, give the opportunity for people to say that they don't need to be mask wearing and social distancing and doing all of the prevention issues. Uh, that um, we have been talking about for a long time
4: right.
0: uh,
5: so it's, it's, uh, it's a great it's, a, it's great news, uh, but uh, you know the implementation of this is not easy it's going to be complicated. we will deal with it we will succeed on it and with it, but um, it's, it's going to be months and months and months
4: well Michael to to that end, I mean you have seventy four thousand employees right. at, at Northwell Health. Uh, when right. are they getting the vaccine?
5: Well, the first um, batch of vaccines we are supposed to get at the beginning of next week. Uh, the, the number of doses that we're going to get, I think uh, we don't know exactly yet, but they're relatively small numbers compared to the numbers of people we have got. Obviously, we prioritize. We prioritize using um, the first people to get the vaccine will be intensive care workers and emergency department workers uh the latest news that i heard is that i'll get somewhere between seven and eight thousand doses of the vaccine and hmm. uh, that's good news but it's a small number and it will come out incrementally over the next uh, month to two months etc so uh, to, to do all uh employees it's going, probably going to take the next month or so that's assuming we get the doses that uh, on the incremental basis that we assume we will so we probably will be starting at the beginning of next week. Tuesday, Wednesday is my guess.
1: And do you anticipate that you will, I'm assuming, do the two doses that's necessary? I mean, that's the, That's what you guys are gonna assume that you will have enough to do?
5: Yes, um, they apparently will give you the, the, the doses for the first uh, for the first round and then they come back and they give you the number for the second round. So you have to get the two doses. Uh, because if because the vaccine begins to really take effect right. after you get the second dose, which is about three weeks after you get the first one, and uh, the management of that and the data systems you need on that are pretty complicated. Um, but yes, we will be doing both. Obviously, you have to. Um, and um, and then you know we got you know the nursing homes are going to get done and the high the uh, uh, staff, and, as I just mentioned, will get done. And then right. you go to the next tiers of staff over the next month or two.
1: Are you at all nervous that you won't get everything you need? And I just think about all the promises for PPE, you know, during the height of the virus in the springtime here. And there, it just the supply chain was terrible. Are you nervous at all, though, Mike, that there's going to be some problems, some hiccups along the
3: way?
5: Oh, there will be hiccups along the way. There will be confusion along the way. That's the reality of all of these things. We are very well prepared here at Northwell. We have unbelievably detailed plans. We know exactly what we need to do. But uh, it would be foolish to think that this is going to go so smoothly Mm. that nothing will, will, will happen that will create a hiccup. I mean, it will happen. We just have to respond to it. As I told staff when I met with them, is that we have to manage the confusion intelligently. Uh, that's what we have to do. But that's what operations does all the time anyway. No nothing no that has to be operat- operationalized always goes smoothly. That's the fact of life. It is what it is, and we will just have to deal with it. Uh, we have all the processes in place. If we get enough doses uh, to do everybody in and, and, and the sequence that they suggest, then we will be fine. Um, and if we have to change along the way, we change along the way. That's the nature of the operations.
4: Well, Michael, I want to get an update about COVID capacity and, and hospital sure. capacity sure. In, in your health system right now. Um, right. You treated nearly 20% of all of New York State, yes. over 100,000 right. COVID-19 patients. What are the hospitals like right now?
5: Hold right up. now, uh, we have today about uh, 760 uh, cases in our hospital. Um and that has gone up from about uh, 80 patients. Uh, this is on a daily basis. About three weeks ago. So the increase has been large. But we've got to put it in context. Back in April, at the height, of, when we were at the epicenter, at the height of the issue, we had 3,500 uh-huh. patients in our hospitals. So while 700 looks like it's a huge number, it is very small relative to what we had before. So we are prepared if the number keeps going up, which I assume it will. Uh, given the holiday season. And I do believe that probably the worst period of time will be right after Christmas, Mm -hmm. uh, the first couple of weeks in January. Uh, But we are ready. We have the capacity. We have the supplies. The staff morale is good. Uh, We have the staff. Um, You know, if we need more ICU capacity, we've got it. So we're pretty well prepared, and uh, I'm working with all of the other health systems in New York, especially in downstate here in New York, and mm. uh, we talk on a continuous basis. And I think we're all we're, we're, we're ready. We handle it before. We will handle it again. I don't think we will get back to anything close to what we had back in April. Um, that's our hope, of course. But if it does happen, uh, we will be able to take care. We're a better position today than we were uh, six months ago, we have better treatment methodologies. Uh, you know, uh, not as many people are going into ICUs today, not as many people are being intubated today. The treatments are better, and the processes are better. But we, are, with regard to capacity supplies, we are in a good position.
1: So wait, I just want to make sure I heard the numbers right. So you said 760 cases, COVID cases, in your hospital today, from today. eight, from 80 a few weeks ago.
5: A few, about three weeks ago, we had, uh, let's say three to four weeks ago, we had about 80 on a daily basis.
1: Okay, so exponentially. And then it started to
5: creep up, you know, it got to 150, 200. And in the last week, it has jumped, uh, you, know, uh, you know, post-Thanksgiving. Yeah. And then we have, obviously, the, the, the election process, um, you know, during the election, there was a lot of people out and about. And then we have pockets in the community that decide, for whatever stupid reason, do not want to wear masks and do not want to social distance, and are not complying with public health safety standards. And in those communities, you do have a higher incidence of of infections.
1: Well, we have definitely heard that from so many, including the nation's top doctors and virus experts. Wearing masks and social distancing makes a big difference. That's Michael Dowling, President and CEO at Northwell Health. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the news that rocked the movie industry brought on by the virus. One-star analyst weighs in. That's next. This is Bloomberg.
0: Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Just about a week ago, Warner Brothers said it will make all of their 2021 films, including Dune and Matrix 4, available on HBO Max at the same time as they open at movie theaters, ending theater chains' exclusivity. It's what we like to call a "wait what" moment, which is exactly how actors, directors, you name it, took it. Which is why it also caught the attention of Star Alice Craig Moffett, founding partner and senior Alice at Moffett Nathanson, who has covered the telecom, cable, and satellite space for years. He's been named the number one Alice by Institutional Investor magazine. Year after year, Craig was also the founder and CEO of the e-commerce business at Sotheby's. Well, Craig filled us in on why investors in AT and T, which owns Warner Brothers, needs to pay attention to this news.
6: The big news um, really is uh, the, the big announcement from AT and T, which uh, about bringing movies uh, in so-called day and date, or the same day that they bring them to movie theaters, bringing them to, be- bring them to uh, HBO Max, and that is. Um, really, an extraordinary development. Um, it has implications for the exhibitors, that is, the the movie theaters. It has implications for AT&T itself, and I think, as you saw with a lot of the blowback today, um, it has a big, big implications for the actors and artists and directors. Um, boy, oh boy, did they hear an earful from how angry some of their stakeholders are.
1: Got a million questions. So do you think this is a 2021 thing or just a short-term thing, or do you think this is something that becomes part of how it happens longer term and maybe forever?
6: Well, uh, you know, it's it, it's it puts them in a, in a difficult position because Jason Kalar who formerly of Hulu and, and the person who uh, put himself out front in this decision, um, uh, in, in re- now running Warner Media, um, it w- made it very clear that this is a decision about customers and that the customers want movies day and date. It's what they've always wanted. Um, and I don't think anybody would argue with that. It's customers would love to have movies day and date. The problem is, once you say that, it's a little hard to put the genie back in the bottle, and then say, "What we've in 2022, we no Can't longer do want to put customers first. Yeah,
7: um,
6: and so uh, it, it feels like, it, it, not just to me, but I think to most people, um, as if this is um, going to become an expectation and. Uh, the, the implications of that, again, are just enormous.
1: Well, I love, listen, you just get into the weeds with all of this, and you really break it down that, you know, when somebody creates a piece of content, you know, a major film or something, you know, the theaters is just one level, right? But there's so many other levels, and you go through the pay windows, right? And, and you say that often when it does its theatrical release, it doesn't necessarily make money there, but it's the later windows. Like you talk about the pay one window, like an HBO, that's where it starts to maybe, you know, be at least be in the green, uh, on some kind of uh
4: movie.
6: And, and remember it's, it, it we're not just talking about AT&T and Warner media themselves. Mm-hmm. We're also talking about directors and, and actors who have participation deals. So yeah, Christopher Nolan, um, a, a critically important director to Warner, uh, Warner Media, um, is irate. And um, as are lots of these d- directors. So, you know, in Legendary Entertainment, which um, was offered hundreds of millions of dollars for King Kong versus Godzilla to go direct to Netflix, took, it, took the, the deal to Warner Brothers instead, and then got blindsided and wasn't told in advance from what we read today, that oh by the way we're taking your movie out of movie theaters or at least um, we're going to be making it available at no extra charge on HBO same day. Right. Um, if you're a director and you're and and or an investor in one of those films and you've got hundreds of millions of dollars riding on the performance at the box office right. based on your contract, your head's going to explode. And and from what we understand, um, they were not at not told in advance in order to keep secrecy. So uh, when, when they did this with Wonder Woman, right? which was, uh, you may recall, yeah. Wonder Woman was the first movie, and that was very done purely as a one-off. It was single film with no expectations of, of any others to follow.
1: But you're talking about what happened with Wonder Woman and what people are now calling the Wonder Woman money. You know, the this comes down to... You know how people are paid, right? Whether it's directors, actors, all of the people involved in getting a movie to the theater, it kind of comes down to that, right? The upfront money versus maybe the money that comes later after ticket sales.
6: That's right, and the reason this is all so important is, look, at the end of the day, AT and T is a phone company, Mm -hmm. and culturally, um, you always have to wonder how well is a is a phone company going to adapt to what is essentially a creative business.
1: Well, time will certainly tell about how well the synergies between AT&T and Warner Brothers work out. That's Craig Moffat, founding partner and senior analyst at Moffat Nathanson. Find that full conversation on our Bloomberg Business Week podcast feed at Bloomberg.com or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Our next guest doesn't mince words when it comes to the commercial real estate market. He says it's the worst since, well, in a long, long time. More from Vestian's chairman. That's coming up. This is Bloomberg.
0: Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: We had a flurry of real estate headlines on the Bloomberg this week, including Manhattan apartment rents sinking to the lowest level in a decade, San Francisco apartment rents plunging the most in the U.S., and Airbnb holding its IPO as its pandemic recovery has outpaced major hotel chains, the virus continuing to make its mark on real estate. So we got real on commercial real estate with Michael Silver. He's chairman of Vestian. It's a commercial real estate firm that serves only occupants of buildings, never landlords. We caught up with him in Chicago.
8: Probably the worst commercial real estate market since the dot-com bust. Mm. Probably surpassing the dot-com bust. And it's probably the worst commercial real estate market. Certainly, it's there's more vacancy than there was as a percentage of the overall supply than there was in 2009 in the recession. So it's, um, and it's going to get worse. And um, it's, it's so. For example, in the U, the U.S., has a four billion square foot supply of office space. Mm-hmm. We're ex- starting to exceed overall sixteen percent vacancy overall. Mm-hmm. Never, that's never occurred. Occupancy dropped in the U.S. so far this year at around thirty million square feet, and it's predicted to drop to around fifty million square feet. And in terms of sublet availability, there's 150 million six, or 160 million square feet of sublet available throughout the United States, headed towards 200 million square feet of availability of sublet. It's never occurred before.
1: So how do we digest that, or you don't?
8: You just don't. I, don't, <laughs> I think, I think, I, I really, there's enough supply uh, in the marketplace in order to mop up all the, all the vacancy that's predicted, there's about a seven-year supply. So I, I just don't think it's going to get back to any kind of state of equilibrium for at least seven, maybe eight years.
1: So what does that mean? Because I feel like I'm looking for a story, and I'm going to find it as I, as I talk with you, but sure. I do feel like, it hasn't necessarily played out yet in the financial markets. Is that fair?
8: Uh, yes, it is fair. And that's because in the, in the multi-market buildings, um, most of the buildings are distributed with seven- and ten-year leases, so most of the owners can make their payments. Okay. So that's played out, but it's not going to last, it's just not going to, you know, be the situation forever, because at some point there's going to be a recognition of how much supply there is, and there isn't any leasing activity right now, and in order to attract leasing activity, owners are going to have to drop their rates.
1: Right. No other choice. Well, here's the story I was looking for on the Bloomberg by Adam Temkin. Uh, The more than $550 billion market for bonds backed by U.S. commercial uh, mortgages may face losses even after promising COVID vaccines become widespread uh, as key parts of the real estate market may not return to full strength anytime soon. We're talking about the CMBS market Um, because I've been kind of, you know, we've all been watching it really closely and it feels like, you know, knock on for Micah, which is what I'm knocking on, uh, it's held up. But like you say, so when do we start to see the problems?
8: Um, I think you're gonna to start to see the problems next year because I don't even think that the amount of sublet space that's on the market today, I think potentially it could double next year. I think people are recognizing, I think building owners are, are I think businesses are recognizing that they probably have 30% more space than they need Mm-hmm. And many of the standard office space users are are just sitting in a state of limbo trying to figure out how much do I need, how much don't I need, right. how many people are working remotely. And whereas technology companies, which represents 21% of the overall market, they're putting space on the market. They're very quick to respond to this. And they're putting a lot of space on the market. And I think the standard... Uh, Office-based users, you know, the lawyers and financial markets will soon start to follow.
1: So this becomes really a 2021 story where it becomes problematic. Where are the banks on? It's going to be a 2021
8: story. It's going to be a 2022 story. It's just not going to be absorbed.
1: Not great for landlords right now, potentially some financial exposure, too, for investors. Uh, and we'll have to see what, how it trickles down maybe into the financial community, meaning banks and so on. But for tenants, they're in the driver's seat right now.
8: In, in an incredible way. And what they need to do is react quickly and find their voice in new negotiations.
1: So, Michael, tell us about what you have seen since you work with tenants. Tell us about some of the tenants that you are working with and maybe what are some of the opportunities that they're finding in this environment, especially when you talk about so much excess supply when it comes to commercial real estate.
8: If a tenant is lucky enough to not be encumbered by a lease, and I'll get back to that, Mm. they should expect to have a 30% discount in overall cost instead of a 10 year lease, they should be negotiating flexibly because a lot of their workforce is working remotely uh, for a three to five year lease. And um, they should be uh, very focused on flexible lease arrangements, um, free rent construction and a drop in the face rent by 30%. Wow. Now, if if a tenant has a lease, they should expeditiously attempt to get rid of the space. Not even we recommend attempting a buyout from the landlord. It's a lot cleaner. And there are a number of landlords who are open to those kinds of arrangements. And it's an opportunity for a tenant to recover more than they would on a sublet. And the owner is benefiting by not having competing space offered at half price in their building. Uh, but the uh, opportunities are incredible right now for tenants. We have formed a division within our company to expeditiously and with dispatch work on ridding tenants of space.
1: so, so. this is this is maybe a once in a lifetime opportunity.
8: Well, the the conditions for owners are as bad as I've seen since 1991, 1992, when the entire commercial market imploded Yeah, just through overbuilding. Um, it's more than a, a one-time lifetime because we're not dealing with uh, just office housing. We're dealing with remote working as well. Mm-hmm. Remote working necessitates needing less space and as i get back to my base case if there's four billion square feet of prop office property in the united states and you need 30 percent less space that that means that 1.2 billion square feet of space needs to get absorbed right and we absorb 200 million square feet a year. So, I, you know, that's why. It's basic math here, right? Coming, yeah. This won't be worked out for quite a while.
1: The working from home, um, Michael, we've had a lot of discussions here with CEOs. And you get, depending on who you talk to, you get a, a, a different um, response. Some say, yep, it's here to stay. You see the big tech companies saying, you want to work from home? That's fine. You can do it forever. Uh, I, I don't. No, it's hard to say how much of it sticks. What are your expectations here?
8: My expectations that it will stick. You know, our clients say that they're just not going back to working full time out of an office space. I actually think we're on the dawn. I mean, for all the problems that I think commercial owners will have,
3: mm-hmm.
8: businesses are on the dawn of some of the greatest productivity advancements that I've ever seen because they're able to work remotely and they're able to work in the office and they're able to work virtually with technology tools that just keep getting better and better. So they're able to function as one unit as opposed to borders that sometimes get created through office space. So you have a combination sometimes of office space and remote working and it's fantastic. The productivity gains are amazing
1: so i'm thinking about our audience smart audience um you know tuned in audience and thinking about the investment play here based on what you're saying and i'm wondering you know especially in a you know a year year and a half or so where we spend so much time our last couple of years talking about we work and co-working companies What's what's the investment play? We've talked a lot about logistics companies and warehouses. That's been a play, and that's going to be even more of a play going forward. What yeah. do you see as the play going forward? You've just got about a minute left here.
8: Well, online services, anything connected with online services. So you're talking about warehouse space, mm-hmm. logistics space. You're talking about 3PL space, you know, reworking supply chains. What's Both
1: 3PL? Forgive me. 3PL, is that supply chain?
8: Yes. Okay. 3PL is third-party providers for warehouse. Got it. Okay, with supply chains. Uh, with, with supply chain. Delivery systems like FedEx, DHL, they need large amounts of space.
1: Distribution centers, logistics, yeah, that is definitely one of the pandemic winners in the commercial real estate space. That was Michael Silver, chairman of Vestian. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. More ahead in our next hour, including why the investing app Robinhood is losing thousands of traders to a China-owned rival. Plus, Gotham Green's co-founder and CEO on raising money and growing the business. That's coming up on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg
0: is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Coming up in the second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, Gotham Green's co-founder and CEO on his company's whirlwind year and explosive growth. Plus, Kenya Hunt, she's fashion director of Grazia UK. She's got a book out about being a black girl, a black woman in today's ever-changing world. And JWP founder Josh Wood, well, he's used to putting on fundraisers for Madonna and others. How he's getting it done in a virtual world, he even brought Brad and Jen back together again. Well, at least virtually. We'll hear his story. But let's get things going this hour with what was one of our most-read stories on the Bloomberg this week. It's about the app that has been one of the big stories in our markets universe this year. We're talking about Robinhood and how it's losing thousands of traders to a rival out of China. Bloomberg Quick Take anchor Tim Stenevich and I got more on this story reported for Bloomberg Business Week by Annie Massa, Bloomberg News investing reporter who joined us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber.
2: You know, it's one of these... um, um sort of stories that I, I kind of love where, you know, we, Robin Hood has been, uh, you know, basically just a, a phenomenon during the pandemic. And along comes, uh, you know, like an upstart that's kind of got its own uh, its own kind of way of doing things that's been, you know, different than Robin Hood, which also had its own way of doing things. So it's almost like they're getting schooled a little <laughs> bit in their own game. And as Any is about to, I think, tell us, They've done it by actually going the opposite way of Robinhood, where Robinhood made everything very streamlined and almost uh, uh, stripped down and bare bones. They've actually flooded it with more information rather than less. Annie, why why does that seem to be working so far?
9: Yeah, that's exactly right. You have this kind of difference between on on one end of the spectrum, you have Robinhood, which is just for a complete entry-level trader, very simple, very clean graphics. And, you know, if you think the way other end of the spectrum might be like an interactive brokers with more sophisticated analysis and real-time data, Webull sits a little bit in between those two. And it's trying to reach out to the same kinds of users that Robinhood is after, the younger kinds of demographic, the more social-oriented types of traders. But it's doing it in a way where the format is... Slightly more sophisticated, slightly more information than you're getting when you log into a Robinhood
4: account. Yeah, Annie, I'm, I'm curious, too, about this, this idea of this being a Chinese company, because think about TikTok and the problems that TikTok has had with the U.S. government. I mean, financial services are regulated so much more. It's
1: like, how's this going to work?
4: Yeah, than a social media company. So, so how are they going to pull this off with Cifius?
9: You're exactly right. And I think TikTok is a very high profile example, but we've really seen how the tensions between the U.S. and China and the trade war and just this rising geopolitical tension between the two countries has been affecting the business world and really creeping into finance as well. So we mentioned in the story how we've already seen you know, the Trump administration kind of thinking about possibly placing restrictions on Chinese payment platforms or threatening to kick companies from China off of U.S. exchanges. So for now, Webull has not been caught up in that fray, but it certainly could be an issue for a company like this down the line.
2: So Annie, what what more do we know about uh, uh, Weeble in terms of like how many how many users are on the platform? What kind of growth are we seeing here? We we mentioned that you know it's it's peeling traders away from Robinhood, but like how big of an opportunity does does Weeble think it sees here?
9: That's right. So is still smaller than Robinhood, but they've been growing fast. They've grown their uh, client base by about tenfold this year, so they have about two million customers now. Now that compares to Robinhood that has more than 13 million customers and they've been going completely gangbusters in terms of new signups this year. But still for a newer company without as much name brand recognition broadly speaking as Robinhood, that is a significant user base. And
2: and talk to more about uh, talk to us more about the stealth mode because I thought that was a really curious thing. Like they've really just cloaked their operation. They they do have an office in uh, downtown New York, in, in uh, right off Wall Street, but but why run uh, so quietly? A lot of people who That's are listening right. to this might be hearing about it for the first time.
9: That's right, so they haven't done any big kind of ad campaign or or advertised really aggressively, and we were talking to the US CEO who said, we're trying to stay under the radar a little bit for now and grow without making a huge splash. It's, a, it's still a very competitive space, and Webull has been fortunate enough to pick up some of the customers that have been frustrated by Robinhood who seek out other options, and then they kind of come across Webull and say, hey, I might like to try and open a brokerage account there um, instead of at Robinhood, either because they're frustrated with the service
1: at Robinhood or because
9: they want to like level up their account a little bit.
1: So I just think just because they have a customer service line, they're going to be like, you know, way ahead of Robin Hood. Um, Annie, so tell us about, I mean, is money coming in, investor money? What's their plan here? That's right. So they're on the brink
9: of raising another fundraising round. Um, They expect to raise about $100 million for a valuation of possibly over a billion dollars. So that would put them in unicorn status territory. Uh, So Hmm. they are trying to attract investors at this moment. They've grown so much in the public imagination, but they've also had some really high profile lapses. So they had an outage that lasted more than a day in March. They've had an issue with hacking of some accounts that we reported on earlier this fall. And each time you've seen users go online, vent their frustration, and some of them have even threatened to leave and seek out other kinds of brokerages.
1: The financial and investing world continues to be disrupted, and that in a week where J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon said that Google's move into banking made it a real competitor. Again, that was Annie Moss, a Bloomberg News investing reporter, and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber joining Bloomberg Quick Take anchor Tim Stenovec and me. Coming up, How We Invest Changing, so too is How We Farm. More on that when we catch up with the Gotham Greens co founder and CEO. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg.
0: Is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week, the indoor agriculture and tech company Gotham Greens announced a new equity and debt capital raise of $87 million, that money to be used to decentralize food production and bring more fresh foods to people across the United States. Well, one of the highlights this week was an interview we did with Viraj Puri. He's co-founder and CEO of Gotham Greens. We began, though, on what a year it has been for them, an essential business that has stayed open
10: been a whirlwind year no doubt Mm. as it has been for many many people if not everybody Uh, but doing well keeping healthy uh, keeping keeping our staff our team members around the country almost 400 of them healthy and safe has been really our top priority and we've been able to keep our business fully operational and for that I am extremely grateful we are fortunate to be in the food system we are fortunate to be um, considered essential employees and we work hard to keep our supermarket customers fresh with Um, healthy fresh produce
1: what was the toughest part of staying fully operational during the pandemic
10: so look we we saw the writing on the wall Um, our team put a crisis management uh, plan into place in, in early February so we worked really hard to secure our supply chain uh, work on shifting our shift schedules around so we could enforce more social distancing and and even sort of got on the temperature checks and things um, a little bit early on. So I feel incredibly fortunate that we were able to do that. And we've certainly had to modify how we run our facilities, but uh, very early on got confirmation from the federal government um, that, that we would in fact be considered an essential industry. So we informed our employees that we could stay operational. And literally uh, the day that the pandemic was declared, uh, we received a surge in, in, in requests from our supermarket customers to run extra trucks on the road and deliver more product, uh, wow. you know, since there was such a run on grocery stores. So it really provided us with an opportunity to really prove our value proposition in the supply chain. You know, the supply chain is so reliant on California, the centralized production there, and we were able to really serve our customers well.
1: Yeah, that's pretty remarkable, because you know, it's all been about supply chains. What, what about what you learned during the pandemic, uh, especially with this new, you know, debt and cap, you know, uh, equity race? I do wonder about, are there strategies that you were thinking about implementing? And, and I've seen, you know, your greenhouses out there in Brooklyn. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. It's very high tech. But are there strategies, Viraj, that you were thinking about putting in place, but taking your time? And all of a sudden, you're like, okay, we're all in on this. Because of the Candidly pandemic.
10: speaking, this yeah. growth strategy and plan was already well in the works even prior to COVID. So in mm. 2019, we almost doubled our capacity with new greenhouse facilities in Illinois, Maryland, Rhode Island, and Colorado. So uh, we were able to really ramp up those facilities this year and double our growth year on year. And we already had a plan into place um, to expand further, further geographic market expansion within the U.S., in 2021 and 2022. So this funding is going to enable us to do that while continuing to build operational capacity and uh, just build our brand and continue to be a leader in this this segment and this category.
1: To be fair, did you have to put some plans on hold because you were just making sure that your employees were safe, your teams were safe, and that you were meeting all of that increased demand by your supermarket customers?
10: Certainly. Yeah. We, we, uh, for, for, for a couple of months there in the spring, we, we were just focused on exactly that and uh, didn't focus as much on on sort of the new site development and land acquisition. So we certainly held our breath for a little bit. But then as as um, things stabilized a little bit in the summer, we um, we we doubled down on those efforts
1: it really sounds like you guys have really been kind of in warp speed, if you will. So tell me about the visibility you feel like you have in 2021 and how you see the year playing out. As a, as a CEO, someone who's running a company, how confident do you feel about the outlook?
10: Given this sector that we're in, which is fresh food production, Mm -hmm. I think the outlook um, looks bright. I think the future is bright for our company, but also for our sector as a whole. I think the pandemic has really revealed a lot of, um, should I say, sort of risks in the supply chain, right? And our entire model is built upon decentralizing the supply chain of highly perishable fresh produce and growing it in closer proximity to Uh, large supermarket retailers and and institutional food service operators. So I think from the B2B side, the outlook is strong. Uh, You know, there's a lot of headwinds in the incumbent supply chain, whether it's uh, water-related issues out west, whether it's climate-related issues, the the wildfires, um, farm labor issues. So I, I really do think that more and more fresh produce is going to be grown indoors. And then I think from the consumer standpoint, Consumers are cooking at home a lot more, Um, although obviously all of us are anxious to get back into restaurants and being out again. People are cooking more at home and they want better quality ingredients and they care more about where their produce um, is grown. And is it hygienic? Is it clean? Is it... Um, sustainably grown. So I I do think on balance, the the prospects are are certainly very promising.
1: Listen, I think that's a really important aspect of it, sustainability. I mean, talking with a lot of senior executives, people running companies, I mean, this is what consumers want. This is what brands need to stand for. And I do think ag is one of those areas when we talk about the climate and water uh, usage, that's a big deal. And and I'm curious, you know, what you're seeing in that area and, and the role that Gotham Greens can play in all of that.
10: Absolutely. I mean, agriculture, like you're alluding uh, to, is a huge consumer of natural resources, right? So it's Mm -hmm. the largest consumer of land on the planet. It's the largest consumer of fresh water in the planet. So around 75 percent of fresh water withdrawals go toward agriculture and farming. Um, It's the largest cause of global water pollution. It contributes 20% of global carbon emissions. You know, the list goes on. So if we're really serious about sustainability and climate change, we need to be looking at ag. And we're seeing a lot of uh, innovation. We're seeing a lot of investment in research and development all throughout the ag supply chain, from the tech side to the distribution side to actual farming techniques, uh, the use of big data. So we play a role within that. And our form of farming specifically, which is broadly known as controlled environment agriculture, allows us to farm using land a lot more efficiently. So what we can grow in one acre mm-hmm. would require 30 acres out in the field, right? So we're much more land efficient. We use 95% less water than conventional farming. And by growing the product in much closer proximity to the marketplace, we don't have to ship the product, uh, you know, great distances. So there's less sort of fuel consumption and associated emissions, as well as less waste, um, less fresh produce gets thrown away this way. So, yeah, I mean, look, we're not sort of saving the entire agricultural system by any means, but I I definitely think we're um, playing a role in it, and consumers are increasingly interested and want to spend their dollars uh, with companies that that are rooted in those kinds of values.
1: People wanting to spend their money with companies rooted in certain values, that is so much behind the rise in ESG investing as investors align themselves with companies with similar values. That again was Viraj Puri, co founder and CEO of Gotham Greens. Coming up, Kenya Hunt, fashion director of Grazia UK, on her book, Girl, 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 on womanhood and belonging in the age of black girl magic. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: We're bringing you some of our favorite interviews, some of this week's highlights on our daily radio show and podcasts. That included Kenya Hunt, fashion director of Grazia UK. She's a fashion insider who's spent years working for some of the media world's most influential women's titles on both sides of the Atlantic. We're talking about Elle, Jane, and more. She's got a book out. It's entitled Girl, 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 Different Spellings on womanhood and belonging in the age of black girl magic. Like many of our conversations, we begin with how her world has been impacted by the virus
11: the the title um, so girl, you know I use the phonetic spellings of girl, uh, three of them in particular. and on the the cover of the British version of the book, I believe I use four or five. Mm-hmm. and um it it's a word that you know, you know I write about how it's the root of a love language between. Black women, you know, it has real meaning in my life personally. I use it a great deal when I'm, when I'm speaking with my girlfriends, with my family members, um, sometimes with colleagues, like close colleagues who become dear friends. And, but, you know, most importantly, that it, it has a multitude of meanings. You know, it can be a greeting. It can be an admonishment. Um, it, can, it can mean a number of things, depending on the context, how you use it, who you're, who you're with. And, um, and so, and then the, you know, on womanhood and belonging in the age of black girl magic really speaks to my, my exploration of, you know, black womanhood as I know it personally, you know, as an American expat living abroad in the UK. And um, as I've come to understand it, you know, as a result of, you know, having lived away from home from the States for the past 11 years and being a part of a a network of, you know, incredible women, really, who are a network that is is quite diasporic. And so, you know, my understanding of my...
1: Myself, mm-hmm. you know, as a
11: black woman who's involved as a result of this experience.
1: Well, and if I look over the essays, um, you know, they deal with the movie The Black Panther, they deal with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex and their decision to step down and the connection with the white supremacist rally in Virginia, what the connections were, you know, and then you talk about, and I know you said, and I really respect what you said, that you don't always want to center on a narrative of pain. But I do think about the essay that is entitled The Front Row. And you do talk about being, you know, a black woman in the world of fashion, uh, and sitting in the front row during fashion shows, and how you were often, you know, the only black woman there. Um, And, and I just, you know, I think we need to have a better understanding of kind of what that's like, and how do we change the world significantly, so it is more diverse. And I am curious about your thoughts on that.
11: Yes, well, you know, I think that um, well, you know, this year has been quite uh, an interesting one because we've seen people engaging with conversation around race and and racism and privilege and in, in ways that we've never seen before, really. And it's been happening on a global scale, And you know that was happening, you know, as the Black Lives Matter. Movement was really gaining steam following, you know, the, the the tragic deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and the list goes on. I think those conversations are vital. You know, the the work of engaging in them has very clearly been exhausting for for Black people. I can, I mean, I can speak for myself. I don't I don't like to speak for you know, entire groups mm-hmm. people. I can speak for the my personal experience. That has been that's exhausting, but I think there's, you know, the, the conversations that have been taking place this year have been really vital because I do sense that there's a real shift happening. Um, and I think black women have been, you know, a driving mechanism in that, um, you know, seeing how it was the work of black women that essentially put Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in, the, in office, for example, or, or the fact that, you know, black women have really been driving this, what is effectively the, the largest civil rights movement in history. Um, and, And so I think, you know, all of these conversations that are happening are, you know, incredibly important in terms of driving change. But also it becomes about changing our behavior as Mm -hmm. well. Um, You know, I can speak to fashion because that's the industry that I've worked in. You know, diversity within fashion has been a talking point probably my entire time (laughs) that I've been working my entire adult working life. And for the longest, it was just that sort of thing. You know, something would happen and we'd see a wave of discussions and panel discussions and articles about it. And then it it would die down and nothing would really change. The needle wasn't really moving. But, you know, I think this, in the past, you know, five years or so, we've gradually started seeing progress. And then this year does feel like a bit of a watershed moment. You know, there was so much discussion about the black squares, you know, and, you know, there's been so much discussion around, you know, performative allyship and, And all of those things, I think it really just comes down to really people changing their behavior, but also being held accountable to that. And a part of that is keeping these conversations out there, making sure it, you know, it's you know, the discussion doesn't die down.
1: That's Kenya Hunt, fashion director of Grazia UK. She has uh, spent so many years working for some of the media world's most influential women's titles. Her book out, Girl, 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 on womanhood and belonging in the age of black girl magic. Straight ahead on Bloomberg Businessweek, remember when we used to go to things, events, fundraisers, you name it? Our next guest puts together those types of events. He pivoted, though, even brought Brad and Jen back together virtually. And yes, I'm talking about that Brad and Jen. That's coming up next this is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Do you recall when we all used to attend events live in person? That included things like fundraisers. That came to an end like so much else because of the health pandemic. And that's where, too, like so much else, those putting on fundraising events had to get creative and pivot. The global fundraising agency, JWP, knows about that. It has worked with Amfar, Madonna, and many more. And this year, it's been involved in COVID-19 fundraisers. We caught up with Josh Wood, founder of the event production and fundraising organization, JWP. He told us what his year has been like.
7: Our business was, you know, a hundred percent based on doing events and fundraisers for live in-person people and for the like the biggest charities in the world. And so we really um, had to think on our feet and sort of change and pivot. But we're doing okay. Well, doing great.
1: Take me back to, and forgive me that I do this, but I think we were all in the same boat. Like, take me back to, you know, March and April, where, um, you know, just. We just saw our world as we knew it. I, I was kidding with one of our last guests, but it was pretty serious that when we saw the sports world start to say we're canceling tournaments, we're we're shutting down. Like that's when we looked at each other and said, "Okay, this is on a whole other scale." If we if we hadn't you know realized it by then, but like everything just shut down. So what was March, yes. April, May like for you?
3: Well,
7: I think we first started seeing you know a lot of our clients in February and March were still thinking that this was going to be a two to three week thing that we were going to shut things down. Everyone was going to stay home. And by the end of May, um, you know, for yeah. us, it's the busiest season that people were going to be going to Cipriani mm-hmm. at the end of May, going to, you know, Art Basel and Switzerland. So we started seeing things slowly start to taper off at the beginning of March. I think when... We had a big event that was planned during the Tribeca Film Festival for our client, CORE, which is Sean Penn's disaster relief organization.
6: Mm-hmm. And
7: um, we heard that the Tribeca Film Festival was shutting down, which we were like, what? Right. How is that possible? And right. then I think things slowly started and everything just, um, just started like tumbling. From there,
1: yeah, that was another so. one because I usually do their their press junket uh, and sit down with Jane Rosenthal and Bob De Niro, and like you're right, it was just it just stopped, like it just wasn't going to happen. And I know there was a lot of where people were saying, well, maybe we'll do this in a couple of months, and then the reality hit exactly. that no, we're not right. going to be able to postpone this for just a couple of months. Um, really, right. really different. So what do you know? So what happens, Josh? Because you know, organizations still need to fundraise; they still need to do yes. philanthropic events. We've seen some things on broadcast television. So, how do you pivot? How do you adjust?
7: Well, what we've been doing is sort of working with each of our organizations that are, you know, like you said, uh, our clients all still need to fundraise. For example, City Harvest, which is one of our clients and is, is, you know, a New York favorite, which is out feeding at need families and people on the front lines mm-hmm. who need food um, we've worked on two sort of telethons with them. Right. Um, and, and sort of the format around that is getting like the best chefs in the world to shoot videos of recipes that they're cooking at, at home and then get celebrities to talk about their favorite cooking. And sort of like, we did one around based on New York and then we did another one that was national and both of them raised over a million dollars. Um, and Fox, luckily donated the airtime, so they were very supportive and um jeffrey sakarian sort of put it all together so it was that was very successful um another one of our clients who i mentioned before core which is sean penn's disaster relief organization they've really been on the front lines of the COVID epidemic and Mm -hmm. have been doing all the free testing first and it started off in la and all of california then new york and then basically all over the United States. Um, But because they were opening at such a rate and there was so much free testing needed, they really needed money.
1: Tell us about this event that you put together that ended up being kind of billed really as that reunion between Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston. Man, there was so much on it everywhere on social you name it everybody was talking about it tell us about the event how it came together and then were you surprised by kind of the react well first of all were you surprised that both of them signed up to do it
7: well I think um we were surprised you know everyone likes Sean Penn and right. he was the centerpiece of it so Sean got it was Sean's idea with Dane Cook to do a reading of Fast Times at Ridgemont High and so Sean I think the the first person Sean asked, I think was Julia Roberts. And so we kind of knew after we had Julia <laughs> that like, we are going to be. Like, yes! And then Julia asked Julia and Jennifer are friends. So then Julia asked Jennifer and then um, we, had, then we got Brad Pitt involved and um, then we got the rest of the cast, which was Morgan Friedman and yeah. um, Matthew McConaughey and just like great people. But we, it, it was, it, the success of, of it was beyond our wildest dreams because I think America loves Brad and Jen, and it was the first time that people had seen them together, and they were acting, you know, they're friends, and they were acting mm-hmm. very casually and talking to each other, and they had a love scene together. So um it was really great, and it was it was a wonderful exposure for Cork because we had over over 20 million people have watched it, which is beyond our Wildest imagination of what we thought. The black tie gala dinners have a really nice rate of return because people like dressing up in black tie. They buy, you know, a table and a unit of ten. It's very social. Much easier. Yeah, it's very social. Like instead of buying, you know, if you have a four hundred person event, you only have to sell forty tables versus four hundred tickets, and you know, people raise money in the auction. So, so there's a there's a high rate of return, Um, but On the digital events, they're not as expensive, but they don't make as much money. But they have been, you know, they have been financially very viable. Like I said, City Harvest, both the telefathons they did raised over a million Mm dollars
0: each. Um,
7: The event that we did for Core for um, Fast Times at Richmond High that raised six figures. You know, that raised a lot of money, um, way more than the budget. So yes, what we're seeing is that the expenses are are lower on the virtual events um, and by innovating and doing creative things with content that hopefully you're able to raise quite a bit of money you know most of ours have been raising um, over a million dollars which has wow, been great
1: that's really impressive well what makes a virtual gala work because I think about this like I was recently invited to something it was an award ceremony and I was like do I really want to sit for two hours on a Zoom as much as I love the event? Right. I'm like you totally don't. Right? <laughs> no. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what makes one yeah. work? Well
7: what, what we learned very quickly at the beginning is that we, we were seeing that people were like at the very beginning, we, we were doing sort of long format um, gala dinners, particularly with the Biden campaign, who was one of our clients mm-hmm. in terms of fundraising. And we were just and they were basically just applying the run of show. That you would for gala dinner to a digital format and that just didn't work you know by minute 20 everyone's eyes were glazing out of their head <laughs> so we really try to keep it short like we keep it you know we advise not anything longer than 30 minutes um have it be really we we try to keep it very interesting creating interesting content um you know for hudson river park is one of our clients and we did an un gala for them which is about 30 minutes long and Martha Stewart did cocktail recipes. They had David Chang do a oh, video. Sweet. Andy yeah. Cohen did a video. So we try to make it like less about the format that you normally would see in a gala and more about creating compelling content and then having some sort of fundraising mechanism for donors to engage.
1: Kind of like, like TikTok videos on steroids, right? With with meaning and content. Yeah. <laughs> no, but exactly. I mean to keep people interested, right? And, and to keep them yeah. certainly engaged. Um yeah, that's really fascinating. So so I have to ask you, because you have worked on some outrageous things. I mean, is there an event that you put together that you kind of pinched yourself and said, I can't believe I'm doing this and I'm with these people and we're making this impact?
7: With, uh, luckily, I've had a lot of those moments. I think the one for me that was the most um, important was we did Nelson Mandela's 100th um, birthday celebrations with his family, his mm. his family, the house of Mandela hired us, and mm-hmm. so we did a full year of events for the Mandela family, and that was incredible. And the last event that was on Nelson Mandela's birthday was at his private home in Johannesburg, and his family were there, and dignitaries, and celebrities, and people from all over the world. And for me, that was such a major moment to be in Nelson Mandela's home with his family and um just getting the message of of what he was all about because you know that's exactly what we need right now is some peace and love so that was great i am hopeful for um meeting and getting in-person events going um is anybody booking
1: anything yet
7: yes we have five proposals go out the door today wow so yes it's crazy so um People are looking very bullish for May onward, particularly in New York. We're seeing in-person events. We did a site visit for an in-person gala at a big space. Really? We have a concert this summer. We always have a contingency plan upon a contingency plan upon a contingency plan.
1: Well, having a backup plan and being able to pivot, that's 2020 in a nutshell. Well, we're all looking forward to being able to attend and be at fundraisers and events in person in 2021, fingers crossed. That was Josh Wood, founder of the event production fundraising organization, JWP. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune in daily to Bloomberg Business Week Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also hear more of our Bloomberg Business Week conversations, Download them at Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch us on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And be sure to check out our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast, jean Filion, CEO of BNP Paribas USA. We talked about the impact of COVID, structural changes as a result, and what visibility he has for 2021 when it comes to the market and investment environment. We also talked about a Biden administration. Bloomberg Business Week, it's available on newsstands now, online, and of course, on on the Bloomberg Terminal. Have a safe weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg.